a member of Weight Watchers, was determined to make it through a whole week without cheating. He dropped into a cafeteria one day for a cup of coffee. A woman with two donuts and a cup of coffee sat down on the other side of the table. The pastries smelled truly delicious, but the man remained firm in his decision not to indulge. Lo and behold, after a while, the woman got up and left, leaving behind one whole donut. An internal struggle ensued, and as he told himself, not wanting a perfectly good donut to go to waste, temptation triumphed. The man reached across the table, picked up the donut, and started to eat it. Just then, the woman came back with a second cup of coffee. Ah, temptation. That is what is at the heart of our Old Testament lesson from Genesis this morning, where we learn that it all started in the beginning. We all know the story. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the tempter in the form of a snake invades paradise and seduces Eve and Adam into doing the one thing that they have been expressly told not to do, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do they hope to gain by this act of disobedience? Well, it's right there. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You know, this particular desire to be like God has always been at the root of all temptation and sin in the human race. Consider its manifestations to have our own way in everything, to have complete control over our lives, to be the captains of our own ships, the designers of our own destinies, to be free to determine for ourselves what is good and evil without fear of correction or reproof, to do what is right in our own eyes without having to answer to anyone else, especially any superior being such as God. Instead, in that moment of surrender to temptation, we read, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, naked here is not literal in meaning. It is figurative. It means that their consciences were exposed and their frail creaturely nature was revealed in their sudden awareness that they were not and could not be God. From that first moment of trying to be God, all manner of evil has ensued ever since. And yet the human race has still not given up the idea of trying to be gods in our own right. We still try to live life by what is right in our own eyes. And that brings us to the first thing to consider about temptation this morning. Temptation is a reality in all our lives. Consider our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted. Temptation was a reality in Jesus' life, especially at his weakest moments. And like him, temptation comes to us in our weakest moments too, when it is especially hard to resist. Temptation is a reality in all our lives. And that leads us to the second thing to consider about temptation this morning. Temptation is for many 
the ruin of their lives. It's been noted that the first temptation in the history of the human race took place in a lush garden with humanity at peace with the whole animal creation. The temptation of Jesus, the second Adam, took place in a barren wilderness with what were now the wild beasts. That contrast between the first temptation and the temptation of Jesus, one in a garden, the other in a desert, is a picture of the ruin which has been wrought by humanity's desire to control its own destiny apart from God. We know better, but as we all come to realize, knowing better is not enough. Consider when we're really tempted to do what is right in our own eyes, but we suspect not all right in God's, we know better, but the lure is almost irresistible. Spouses know that cheating can ruin their marriages and lead them into disgrace. Substance abusers know that it will impair their health and it may prematurely end their lives in a horrible way. Business people know that sooner or later shoddy practices will be exposed. But knowing isn't enough. Temptation is a reality and a potential ruin, but it still wins. Something more is needed. We need help. And that leads us to the third thing to consider this morning. Temptation has a remedy. The remedy to temptation is not willpower, by the way. It would be so easy if willpower was the remedy. Just say no, right? It, but reality is that the things that truly tempt us are the very things over which we have the least self-control. It's like, I'm trying to remember who it was that said this. Uh, someone will tell me afterwards. But he said, I can resist everything except temptation. That's such a great quote. Somebody's going to know who said that. Anyway, no amount of moralizing seems to help. We wish it were, but it's not. We are vulnerable. We need a remedy to help us deal with the temptation. And there is one. Our gospel lesson shows us Jesus' way. Here, three different temptations are laid before Jesus. All of them have the same end result in mind, to get Jesus to break himself free from his Father's will and plan. Now, I'm going to diverge from where I'm going for just a moment, because without fail, someone will observe here that Jesus was also God and he couldn't really be free to break off from himself. Really, could he? Okay, so I gotta answer that one. Without getting into the intricacies of the divine relationship, let me ask you a question. Haven't you found it to be the case that temptation has often bro broken you into two minds? Haven't into almost two nearly competing persons within your own body. The reason the scripture calls this the temptation of Christ is because it was possible for him to be truly tempted. Jesus really could have said yes to evil in that moment. And that is why Jesus' sinlessness 
is so important for yours and my relationship with God. I'm going to give you a, a scripture reference, and I want you to grab a pen, if you've got one, or a pencil out of the pew racks, and write this down on your bulletins, and please don't give them back, take them home, and look this reference up in your own Bibles at home and memorize it. Yes, this is a, it's the first Sunday of Lent, so this is a good Lenten discipline to begin with. The reference is Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Again, that's Hebrews chapter four, 14 through 16. Look it up and memorize it. It is among the most profound statements on God's grace and I guarantee that it will embolden your relationship with God and those precise moments when you most need it. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Now, back to where I was going. Since Jesus was able to resist, let's look at his method. In each case, the tempter offers Jesus some great thing. And then Jesus gives his answer. And note the answer is always something is, is like this. It is always from the words of God. It is written. Again, it is written. For it is written. And his final answer, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You see, Jesus' heart's desire, his, his joy, was the will of God and the service of God. So much did he fill his mind with the things of God and the words of God that when the great moment of testing came, he was able to respond not just with some clever retort, but with a commanding rebuke to temptation. You know, the contrast with how we usually face temptation is like this. You remember, Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, where Odysseus's ship approached the island of the sirens who sang songs that lured sailors to their death on the jagged rocks. He ordered his crew to fill their ears with wax after binding him to the mast so that he could hear the temptation without fear of succumbing to it. He literally white-knuckled his way through the temptation. And that is such a metaphor for how we face temptation, relying on our own willpower. But there's another Greek story that helps us see how Jesus dealt with temptation. When the ship of Orpheus sailed by that same island, Orpheus sang a song that was so beautiful, so divine, that his sailors did not even listen to the siren's music. That is what Jesus did. He responded to temptation's limited vision with the unsurpassable vision of God. That is what we are to do if we are to pass the tests of temptation in life. We are to fill our lives with the song so beautiful that we cannot even hear the song of the tempter. We are to so feed ourselves upon the words of God and to fill our minds and our hearts with the thoughts of God that nothing less than God's vision will be able to fit in them. 
It is to make such a positive commitment of our lives to God's purposes that we do not have time nor place for the negative, the destructive, the sinful. This is the remedy to the reality and the ruin of temptation. Self-willpower is a delusion because, you see, it is part and parcel of that same temptation to be our own gods, to have control over our own destinies by ourselves. Only God's Redeemer, Jesus Christ, at work within us can unleash the power of God's remedy to temptation and sin. You know, someone has caught this truth in a prose entitled, The Pit. And it goes in part like this. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get out. Many observers commented as they passed him by. One said, you have the pit you deserve. Another said, if you would have listened to me, you would never have fallen into that pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A news reporter said, could I have the exclusive story on your pit? An IRS agent said, have you paid your taxes on that pit? A realist said, that's a pit. An optimist said, the world shouldn't have pits. Excuse me, an idealist said, an optimist said, cheer up. Things could be worse. A pessimist said, things will be worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit and said, come, follow me. The pit of temptation and sin is an awful place to be, but there is one who releases us. There is no other lasting remedy to the reality and ruin of temptation. Fill your life so full of Jesus, his thoughts, his will, and he will set you free.